Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and to this episode four of our mini-series on the maritime history of Sweden. We've already been on a tour of Stockholm's National Maritime Museum and we've heard about Swedish Vikings in Arab lands and we've heard about Sweden's naval history from 1500 onwards and how it influences the present day. But today we're heading back in time again, this time to the 18th century, to find out all about one of maritime Sweden's most interesting characters, Frederick Henrik Aff Chapman. Born in Gothenburg in 1721 to immigrant English parents, his father had served in the Swedish Navy before becoming a manager of a shipyard in Gothenburg. His mother was the daughter of a London shipwright. He was, therefore, born into a life of ship design and construction, and he was just ten when he designed his first vessel. By 23, he ran his own shipyard, maintaining and repairing Swedish East Indiamen. This was a period when the science of shipbuilding reached new heights, and Chapman, uniquely a mathematician and a shipwright, led the way. He is considered to be the grandfather of naval architecture. Mathematicians who studied shipbuilding lacked the practical skill to implement their own ideas, while shipwrights lacked the mathematical understanding. The first person who combined these two skills was Frederick F. Chapman. Chapman made it possible to predetermine and assess mathematically different attributes of vessels, such as stability and sailing qualities. To find out more, I sat down in the library of Sweden's National Maritime Museum with one of their curators, Jonas Hedberg. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is a man jam-packed with juicy facts. It's Jonas Jonas, tell us where we are. It's probably best coming from you. Yeah, we're in the library of a Swedish National Maritime Museum in Stockholm. And this uh, space hasn't changed uh, very much since 1938, when it opened. And this is uh, uh, one of Scandinavia's largest libraries for, for maritime literature. It's amazing. The um, It's 
it's a classic library in that there are books that go all the way up to the ceiling and all the way around. Um, there have got to be thousands of books in here. I'd like to spend some time in here. Um, now, we're just sitting down next to a display case, and there's a very special book in that display case, and it's the subject we're going to be talking about. Um, let's begin by talking about this special book in the display case. Jonas, what's that? Yeah, well, this is um, a copy of uh, the Holy Scripture, uh, which used to belong to uh, Frederick Henrik of Chapman, who's uh, the, the single greatest name in Swedish uh, shipbuilding history. Yeah one would have to say. How did you get, well, go on and talk about him, but how did you get his Bible and why have you got his Bible? Well, it was uh, donated to us a couple of years back and it's on display here for, for the time being at least. And it's interesting to to uh, look at his notes on, on some of the pages, which uh, sort of give you a, a, a slight inkling that he wasn't very religious himself. <laughs> right. Necessarily. Scrawling all over his own book. Yeah. I have to say that uh, annotations in historic books, uh, particularly Bibles, I think, are absolutely fascinating. Was he um, was he writing about the scriptures or was he just doodling about boats? Uh, well, he he, he um, made some remarks which uh, weren't necessarily in line with uh, religious dogma at oh, the time. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. Now, we've had a lovely walk around the museum this morning looking at your extraordinary collection of ship models, which are actually going to feature uh, very soon in the Lloyd's Register Foundation's project Maritime Innovation in Miniature. So I'd urge you all to make sure you Google that and go and find that. And there are uh, we're going to be filming a one of the Chapman ships, and there was also a beautiful little model made by uh, Stefan, your resident model maker. Um, how long have you had a resident model maker in the museum? Well, uh, ever since uh, the beginning, actually, there, there used oh. to be at least five or six of them. Really? Yeah. And now we're down to one. But we're, we're very happy to still, yeah. to still have him. Yeah. And he has his own model making studio, which I've been blessed to go into. Yes, he does. It's very exciting to visit. Yeah, um, the most remarkable tools and um, an extraordinary, extraordinary job. So on the desk of Stefan's workshop at the minute is a very beautiful example of a Swedish warship from the 18th century, which was made by uh, Frederick Henrik F. Chapman. So let's talk a little bit about him. Who was he? Why was he so brilliant? Well, Chapman is really unique in, in, in Swedish maritime history because he was a bit of an upstart, really. Okay. Yeah, he was at, at odds with the uh, traditional Swedish shipbuilding establishment, which at the time, uh, during the 1700s, was, was dominated by um, uh, a family of, of uh, British descent called the Sheldons. And... Um, they sort of monopolized naval shipbuilding for for uh, for at least forty or fifty years. Mm. And Chapman's a very distinctively English name. So was he English? Was he Swedish? What's going on there? Well, he 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 was born to British parents yeah. who immigrated to Sweden in in the early seventeen hundreds. So uh, there was a, a strong uh, shipbuilding tradition in the family. So uh, there was a bit. Bit of infighting, I suppose, going on between 
Chapman and, and the Sheldon uh, family about who who would get the lucrative contracts and right assignments. Yeah. Uh, so did Chapman learn learn his craft in England or in Sweden? He did learn his craft in in England to to a great extent. He he visited London for a uh, for a number of years in the seventeen forties and fifties, mm-hmm. and he spent time at the Royal Dockyards. Okay, uh, uh, which would have been Woolwich, yeah, Deptford, Chatham. Yep, and he he learned uh, picked up a lot of of, of um, knowledge there, and and he. Uh, collected a vast number of uh, line drawings and plans, uh, and actually he was uh, he was arrested by <laughs> by the authorities. I'm not surprised. What happened to him? Well, he was put under house arrest for a month, uh, and he was uh, they suspected him to be a French spy. Mm. French, not Swedish. Yeah, interestingly, interestingly enough. Because he he was um, London was um, only one of the stops on his uh, uh, grand tour of right. Europe, and he was headed for Brest, okay, the French naval base. So yeah. that, that would have um, uh, made him a bit suspicious in the eyes of the, the British authorities, I guess. It makes you wonder what would happen to someone who stole the plans for a British warship now, and I promise you, you wouldn't be put under house arrest for a month. No, <laughs> most be, likely not. <laughs> you'd be in some fairly serious trouble. But yeah. that um, kind of highlights the point about the exchange of ideas. It was more of a slap on the wrist, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But uh, he, he was very, very eager to learn, very curious. And above all, he had this ambition of, of applying advanced science, right? Uh, which hadn't been done to such a great extent before in okay. shipbuilding. Which is surprising, saying that this is the 1740s, 1750s. That, yeah. That's, you know, r- relatively late um, to suddenly decide to embrace advanced mathematics and advanced science for shipbuilding, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, uh, shipbuilding in Sweden and, and also, I think, uh, Britain to a great to a great degree during this period relied on, on uh, sort of... Um, incremental right. change rather than any wild experiments. Yeah. And uh, Chapman had 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 seen what how wrong things uh, how how long it could take for a, a, a ship of a line to be actually completed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he wanted to So that about ten years, a bit longer? Could be upwards of ten years, yeah. Yeah. In Sweden at least. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you'd assume that the knowledge of how to design and how to build, things move so quickly in our modern world. Yeah. Um, but his ambition was to streamline the whole process right? and, and um, get things done more efficiently and cheaply. Yeah. Was he successful? Yes, you would have to say that he was, actually. Uh, he he um, was put in tra- charge of a naval rearmament program in the 1780s in, in uh, Karlskrona, which is uh, this naval base in the south of Sweden. Yeah. And he built 10 ships of the line, uh, which were fairly small, two-deckers, 60-gunners, um, and 10 frigates. 10? That's an awful yeah. lot, isn't it? In, in the space of three years. So that's uh, 
with a very constrained budget. He built all of those ships in three years? Yeah, so that's, that's a, a pretty massive feat for the time. Yeah, it must have been an, an immense amount of manpower. Yeah, yeah. And uh, these ships uh, were, were, went on to serve in the uh, Russo-Swedish War of 1788 to 90 mm. and performed really well in, in themselves. Uh, the, the, the problems were more on the level of, of uh, inept high command and, and lack of skilled crews. Was that a problem that had bedeviled Swedish maritime history or was that a new problem in the 1780s? No, I, I think it would be safe to say that the problem of finding uh, skilled, seasoned uh, seamen would, would uh, that was something that appeared every now and then. Mm. Uh, that was a distinct uh, disadvantage compared to the Danish Norwegian navy, which had had uh, had better access to to uh, seasoned. Was it the Danes who had a, had a rude term for the Swedish sailors? Yes, they, they condescendingly referred to, to Swedish sailors as peasants dipped in salt water. <laughs> What's a really nasty thing to say. It is a really nasty thing to say. Uh, perhaps there's a grain of truth to that, after all. Mm, yeah. And the, um, the, the British also had a, had a presence in the Baltic in the 18th and the early 19th century. Did they come across um, Swedish naval power? What do they think of the Swedes? Yeah, well, they uh, they entered the Baltic in 1808, I believe, to to assist uh, Sweden against the Russians, which we were war with at the time. So that's, there, were, there was a um, we were allies uh, in the Baltic, mm-hmm. um, and I honestly don't think the Royal Navy was very impressed with the state of the Swedish Navy at the time, because. Uh, Huge proportion of Swedish crews fell ill with uh, scurvy and other uh, other diseases, which uh, <coughs> surprised uh, the British. But they, I think they were surprised that not enough measures were taken to to uh, prevent disease. And yeah. So it was, was a bit of a uh, a backward. Um, Backward step. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it, with the, the sailing navy? It's something that I realised very early on when I was writing about it, is how visible competence is, and you can't hide from it. So um, it's all to do with the uh, the performance of a ship at sea, the uh, even down to how, how quickly and efficiently the sails are brought in or reefed or whatever it might be. So yeah. for the British, it would have been very clear um, that there was a problem with the Swedish Navy. Yeah. Um, but the ships were good, weren't they? We'll come back to Chapman again. Yeah, the ships were really good. Uh, they were designed to to be able to navigate in shallow waters and to deal a, a, a swift, decisive blow to the Russians or the Danish, just sailing to the naval bases at, at, at Kronstadt or, or Copenhagen, just to um, be able to sort of sweep in and... and, and uh, mm. uh, like a lightning attack. A lightning attack, yeah. Is that what we're talking about? That yeah. wasn't really realistic because um, as it happened, the, the, the Russian Navy uh, refused to stay in port. <laughs> they didn't play the same game. <laughs> no. So so, so what, what happened was uh, there, there was a bit of sl- uh, a slogging match at sea. And there the Swedish Navy was at a disadvantage because uh, the, she- the Swedish ships were... were uh, 
smaller and couldn't withstand prolonged artillery duels, as well as the Russian ones, which were uh, larger. Mm. The model that's down on Stefan's workshop that we are going to film and that we looked at, which which type of vessel is that? That's an East India man. Oh. Uh, so he was designing uh, for other people as well? Yeah, well, uh, na- naval ships were, were only part of his production and... Uh, he designed quite a number of, of um, ships for the Swedish East India Company, right. uh, which was quite active in in, in the late 1700s and, mm. and into the 1800s. Yeah, it was an interesting interesting vessel. So it has uh, um, a great deal of space on board, obviously for um, uh, for trade uh, and some gun ports, but not as many as you'd find on a normal warship. No, they were they were more for show, I, I would imagine. I mean. They, there was always uh, the need to defend yourself against privateers, and yeah. So, but uh, it's not not a uh, by any means a heavily armed ship. No, but he's he's certainly he's he's building a ocean going ship that isn't just for service in the Baltic. That's the difference, isn't it? So yeah. the naval ships were purely for service in the Baltic, but here he's building an East Indian, which is is that's got to cope with the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, isn't it? Yeah, but apparently they did really well. And were really, uh, really good sailing qualities. And uh, Chapman was was uh, really good at promoting himself. So he published a number of works in in English and French. All right, I'd like to read those. What are they called? The most internationally known one would be the treatise on, on shipbuilding, yeah. which was published somewhere in the seventeen seventies, I think. The other aspect, so the, the, the ship we're talking about, the East India Moon, is a, is a large three-masted square rigged vessel. You, you can't um, spend any time at your wonderful museum without realising that Sweden has a long tradition of oared craft, galleys as well. Did he build any of those or was that something that he, he, he didn't get involved in? Well, yes, indeed, he did. Uh, when he returned from, from uh, France and England, in the late 1750s, uh, he was uh, hired by the Crown, mm-hmm. uh, and his first assignment was to come up with new types of, of uh, amphibious craft for, for the Swedish Archipelago Navy. Okay, which was I... a, a, a unique arrangement at the time because it was independent from the High Seas Navy. Where was it? Where was it, where was it based? It was based mainly in Stockholm and also on on uh, Sverborg and in Stralsund in Swedish Pomerania, which was a Swedish possession at the time. So he came up with uh, four main types of, of uh, hybrid vessels. I guess you could call them, they, they had sails, but were, uh, had oars as well. Mm-hmm. They, they were able to navigate in, in shallow, confined waters. Um, and the idea was to Get something better than these uh, these uh, pretty antiquated galleys yeah. that Sweden had depended on. Uh, this sounds like some kind of Mediterranean warfare. It's reminding me of the galleasses they're called, which they were used at the um, in the Spanish Armada, um, and also of the um, the amazing vessels um, that the Venetians had. Yeah, there's and, a d- direct lineage okay. between the galleasses and 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 the. Um, uh, vessels which were used in in the Baltic during the Great Northern War, uh, okay. because that's something that Russia pioneered in the Baltic. Right, 
They lifted the idea from the Venetians and then they raided the Swedish coastline in 1719 and and for a, a couple of years after that. So how were these vessels armed? They were lightly armed. They had huge crews, not a lot of firepower, but they were very effective because they could evade uh, frigates and ships of the lines, yeah. seagoing vessels, and they could land troops, which would then torch every building in sight and quickly move on to the next. Terrifying. Yeah, that, this was something that uh, left its mark on the Swedish national conscience for, for hundreds of years. Yeah, so I'm not surprised, though. It, it actually reminds me of the Viking raids on England, where previously living by the sea was was quite a nice thing and there was a there was a living to be earned you could get your food and suddenly being by the sea was the most dangerous place you could possibly be exactly and and uh, so there was an, an acute urgent uh, need to to counter this and the first thing the Swedes did was was to um, build their own galleys but but during the 70, uh, Seven Years' War, it was realised that this, this wasn't really the most effective type of vessel. Mm. So Chapman uh, came up with um, four main types of, of uh, archipelago frigates, uh, or at least that, uh, that's the term that's been used later on. Uh, they weren't frigates by, by any real means, but... Um, Two of the types were heavily armed uh, and were able to to uh, inflict uh, really severe casualties on, on, on Russian galleys. Right. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And... As it turned out, they were a bit of a disappointment when when uh, used in actual battle because they weren't uh, they weren't really mobile enough. So uh, they were gradually repa- replaced by smaller vessels, uh, also of Chapman's design, and these were gunboats and gun sloops, uh, 
and they were even copied by the French. I think Napoleon had this idea of, of uh, using uh, gunboats of the same type to to um, to invade England, basically. Right. Okay. <laughs> so his influence was European wide, um, and I, I, the the use of advanced maths and science to inform the techniques of shipbuilding design is really interesting because you and I went to the Vasa Museum yesterday and here's a ship which uh, um, built in the 1620s, is that correct? Um, and that would have been built and designed in a completely different way. Should we just talk a little bit about that? What do we know about how the Vasa was designed? Well, it was designed partly by royal decree uh, the king had decided on on uh, the the, uh, the rough measurements. Eddie, did uh, he know anything about shipbuilding? Well, of course, he didn't didn't know the first thing about shipbuilding, mm. which was uh, a big part of a problem. But it it probably saved a couple of heads because nobody could really be held to account oh. when when um, when the trial took place because uh, the king. Gustavus Adolphus had, had uh, signed the the, uh, the orders himself. Yeah. Let me just jump in here. And for those of you who don't know, the Vasa is the extraordinary 17th century warship that uh, was that sank on her maiden voyage and was raised by the Swedes and is now in the Vasa Museum in Stockholm. And there is a separate podcast episode on the history of the Vasa. So um, you should all um, listen to that, give you a bit of background information. Um, but yeah, the, 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 it developed from medieval ship design, an yeah. oral tradition. Well, in the case of the Vasa, it was built by, by Dutch uh, shipbuilders. And we blame the Dutch, is that what yeah, you guys do? Yeah, <laughs> as, as you do. <laughs> Very good. Blame the king and blame the Dutch. Yeah. So they, they, um, they, they um, didn't use... Uh, line drawings of plans uh, in, in the modern sense, but uh, sort of um, carried on um, from previous designs. And the first, first plans that we have in our collections are from the late 1600s. Okay. Like 1690s, so very like 70 years after the Yeah, Russia. yeah. So before that, it was very touch and go. Yeah. And it's interesting as well because you've recently a very exciting discovery. You've you found the Vasa's sister ship. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was a ship that was launched uh, slightly after the Vasa, and it was uh, was called Eplet in Swedish, which which is the apple. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, if I remember correctly, she was launched in 1629, and uh, obviously. They weren't really interested in repeating the same <laughs> catastrophe. <laughs> so, so um, this ship was was uh, a bit wider. Okay, so enough to to um, make her a not really successful sailing vessel, but but she um, she didn't sink on her first she voyage. She, she remained afloat for at least uh, thirty five years. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's so, a good career. So she was sunk outside Stockholm to to um, as a like a blockading ship. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that was uh, done for a, a couple of hundred years. You sank uh, old warships to to mm. hinder 
Yeah, enemy en- movement. Enemy shipping. But that's something which which you guys are particularly suited to because of the the shallowness of the sea, but also the narrowness of the inlets. So you yeah. can you can easily block and well easily, but you can relatively easily block. And I yeah. think the Europeans, the British and uh, the French, went through a process of having chains. Uh, which were useless. Uh, I think, as far as I can work out, they were they they spent an, an enormous amount of time building these things, but were fairly easy to break. <laughs> yeah, uh, this was um, uh, uh, sort of a, 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 a narrow entrance uh, to to Stockholm, which mm. was fairly easy to block off in that way. There's a long tradition of that, isn't there? The um, there's somewhere in. Denmark, where um, they found some Viking ships which had been sunk. Uh, I forget what they're called now. Do you know which ones I'm talking about? It's a collection of Viking ships which were found sunk at the entrance to a fjord. Yeah, sounds sounds familiar. Yeah, I think they're they're in the Viking Ship Museum in Denmark. Yeah, um, uh, currently. Um, oh, wow, so they, they were these um, uh, ships were probably stripped of of, of most fittings and, and stuff. It's it's uh, really well preserved. Uh, and so it's e- easy. Uh, it's really interesting to to um, think about uh, what the Vasa would have looked like if if she had ever had a successful yeah. sailing career. Yeah, well, wonderful. It's a brilliant place to leave it, Jonas. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, do please make sure that you leave us a review on whatever app that you're listening on, especially if you're listening on iTunes. I promise I'll read out any review that you leave. It's hugely important to help us climb up the rankings and get as many people as possible listening to the podcast. We've got a brilliant YouTube channel with some truly remarkable videos there. Most recently, the animation of a cutaway of a 17th century first-rate man of war, explaining all of the amazing technology inside a a remarkable warship of the period. The podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and Lloyd's Register Foundation, so please make sure you do everything you can to check out what those brilliant institutions are up to. In particular, please check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Just Google it. Maritime Innovation in Miniature, and you'll see the world's best ship models filmed in the most extraordinary high definition. It really is amazing. And please join the Society for Nautical Research. You can find them at snr.org.uk it's a brilliant way of supporting the podcast but also of finding out about all sorts of wonderful maritime history it really is a very good idea and worth doing